Hi, this is the Tempter podcast where we discuss embedded Linux, IoT development and anything else we might find interesting. Your host is Kim Raj and today I'm joined with Cliff Break. Cliff. Yeah. How are you, Cliff? Yeah, doing well. How about you? I'm doing fine. So, um yeah, so Cliff uh, is a your distro creator and uh he's a very prolific contributor to open source and today we are going to uh talk to Cliff about his experiences. Uh, Cliff has been very effective in several communities including open source uh communities like Open Embedded and uh he is trying to create a new community for IoT which is called uh, Simple IoT. So I'm very excited and uh, we'll hear more about that uh, in this podcast. So welcome uh, Cliff again and uh, how do you feel today and uh, uh, what would you like to uh, say about this yeah yeah looking forward to the discussion and it's always a learning experience so mm-hmm. um, things I'm very interested in so um so Cliff you have been involved uh, uh, in open source for many many years and um, so it would be interesting to know how did you get into open source and what inspired you to get into open source and what have been your learning so far Mhm. Yeah, I've been been working in product development about 27 years now and trained as a as an electrical engineer. And years ago, one of my coworkers introduced me to Red Hat Linux around when it was first released. So that's that's kind of what kick-started the the Linux movement at least what I'm familiar with. And and a number of us were installing this this box distribution that we bought at the local computer store on our on our PCs. and i had been using unix systems in various forms at school and work for several years at that point so this was very interesting to have a a version of linux which was like unix that i could run on a pc and do many of the same things so that was kind of my first introduction to linux which you know really helped start the the open source movement it seems Mhm. So was it like Red Hat Linux 6 or something like that you started with? Or? You know, I I can't remember the number, but I think it was in the mid 90s, so mm. one of those early versions. I see. And uh, um I'm sure that besides Red Hat Linux, you also kind of then ventured into other distro hopping and things like that, I'm I'm sure. Yes, over the years I I've used several distros including Gentoo for for several years, so lately I've been running Arch Linux which fits my needs well it's it's very well maintained very very reliable mm-hmm. but it's also a rolling distribution which gives us the latest versions of of everything and as a developer i find that very useful to always have the latest tools or libraries available mm-hmm. so i like that a lot nice so uh, how did you get into open embedded and and uh, and then i think we'll get to you know how did you get to create uh your distro but um i know that you know you are you been involved in uh, open embedded in various forms for several years and um, so uh, what was your uh, point where you know you kind of started with the project and uh, and then how do you use it how which parts of this have you been involved in and various other aspects like i said i i've i've been mostly doing product development so that's kind of my perspective At one point I worked for a company that that offered product development services and uh, at a previous company we had embedded Linux on a on a PC processor in, inside a medical printer so that was kind of my first first time I used Linux in an embedded system so then we were helping people develop products 
some of the early processors like the Strongarm SA1100, and I think that was one of the first processors that would really made it possible to run run Linux. Yeah, yeah, I and, remember and, that. Yeah, so I think that was really good um, processor that got into the PDAs as well, right? Uh, mm-hmm. in, yeah, in that kind of kickstarted PDAs like the Compaq, IPAC, and and various devices like that. So about the time those devices started coming out, running Windows, uh, Microsoft's OS, Windows CE, and various forms of that, a lot of people were interested in running Linux on these devices. And there was a Sharp Zaras and several other devices at the time. So a community kind of built up around that, some tooling to, to build these embedded Linux distributions or images. And uh, Open Embedded kind of emerged as a very nice tool at the time and has continued for, for a number of years now. So as we were developing products with these strong arm processors and then like the PXA270 that followed and various other processors, you know, some of our customers wanted Linux and that kind of got me into the open embedded scene. That, that's kind of pretty much been involved from the start back when it was created. So mm-hmm. lots changed, but it's a lot still the same too. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, there was a time back when, um, you know, it started off of uh, Gentoo, I believe, and then, you know, it, it adopted some portions of um, how Buildroot was doing things like packages and stuff, and then, uh, and then evolved into a thing of its own. Um, so, um, can you recount like a couple of areas where you thought that, you know, project was um, successful, you know, over the period of years and, um, and to garner the community and in general, you know, making like project useful for a lot of others? Yeah, just, just thinking back now, I guess what really impressed me about the Open Embedded project was it, it had kind of a nice structure and consistency about it. The organization of packages, classes, recipes, and then the various meta layers and the, the kernel tooling and the ability to fetch from Git repos and, and build our custom applications and, and sources. And also the ability to modify existing packages. That was all very critical to build products in a controlled way. Before that, we would, you know, the typical process was to uh, find somebody who had kind of put together a an image, a RootFS image by hand, and then you'd kind of copy some stuff into it, kind of build up a tool chain using, um, you know, that process just wasn't maintainable or, or sustainable for product development where, you know, you need to run these builds over a long life cycle of five years. Things are continually changing, requirements are changing. And um, the fact that with Open Embedded, we could build everything from scratch. We, we had full control of it. And it was in a very controlled, predictable tooling tool that this provided a huge huge amount of value to what we were doing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so um yeah that's quite interesting and uh, now i think i'm interested to talk about um, you know your projects uh, specifically the uh, two projects actually the open source that you have created recently it's one of them is uh, the yo distro and uh, the other one uh, is the simple IoT project. So um, could you go into, um, you know, what basically is um, behind these projects and, um, you know, why you thought it 
they, they, this project uh, should be created. So essentially, you know, they, they, they do kind of like fit in into uh, IoT and Emerald Linux kind of, you know, uh, world and they go hand in hand. So what are the parallels between them? And so it will be interesting to know that. I guess maybe I'll back up just, just for one second and mm-hmm. talk about why we use Linux and embedded systems to, to mm-hmm. start with. And it's typically when you're processing significant amounts of data or you're presenting complex user interfaces with, with say, a touchscreen LCD or you're communicating data over networks that's a little more complex than, say, a few few variables. So in all, all these scenarios, you know, we reach for a complex system like Linux, which has the features we need. And as, as I was using Open Embedded on, on projects, you know, we were kind of doing the same thing over and over. And over time, we developed some tooling and, and a very thin wrapper around Open Embedded that, that kind of helped us automate a few things. And we also came up with a directory structure that made a lot of sense. It made searching for things easy. It made capturing changes and and get easy. And and this became what we called an OE build template that I used for years. Mm-hmm. And then um, others like yourself kind of contributed and, and used it as well. And then at, at one point we were thinking about what to do with this open this OE build template. And, and we thought it might be good to spin it off as a separate, as kind of a standalone project. And we named it the Yo distribution. Mm-hmm. So uh, that, that's kind of the, where it's come from. It's, it's, it's evolved over a number of years, but we really, we really try to emphasize simplicity. We try to keep it thin and light and really tailor, <clears throat> really tailor it to help people who are developing products do their job easier, faster. So that, that's kind of the story behind OE. So the, the simple IoT project kind of came about in the same way. You know, we really, we've been doing IoT for years before they called it IoT. Basically, it's collecting data and sending it over networks from sensors and, and various devices. So again, there's, there's these common things we're doing on most projects. You know, there's a, a user management aspect. There's group management. There's... Most projects, you know, you're, you're deploying a number of devices and certain people need access to a subset of those devices. And then those people are usually organized in groups. You know, they may belong to one company or mm-hmm. one organization. The code to manage a, a cellular modem, you know, that, we, that mm-hmm. tends to be the same from project to project. Another thing we recently added was Modbus support. That's very general and reusable. Mm-hmm. So both these projects kind of are a collection of best practices and code and tooling from real-world projects that we've just kind of collected and organized in a reusable fashion. Mm-hmm. Nice, yeah. So um, I was looking through the simple IoT project, and it seems to be written in Go language. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Um, we, we tend to use that where we can these days for a number of reasons. It works really well in embedded Linux edge devices because it's a very stable, reliable language. It's very efficient. The binaries are reasonably small. And Mm -hmm. yeah, it's just a pleasure to work with. And and likewise, on the cloud side, you know, all the same things still apply there. So it's easy to deploy. Mm -hmm. And really has has, has made this, you know, make creating these systems a lot easier. Mm -hmm. 
So um, I talked to, um, you know, several um, engineers and, and architects who do, you know, uh, edge development or sort of embedded development. And uh, there is uh, this hesitancy still that uh, the Go language is kind of classified as a language that has, you know, more appeal towards uh, web programming and maybe networking or some sort. But, you know, it's essentially being classified as a server programming languages. Uh, so what's your take on that? Like, um, you know, I think you have basically used it, not everything server, basically you have used it for everything else. So yes. uh, <laughs> it's interesting to know from you that, um, is that notion correct or is there something that we can learn from that? And, uh, you know, uh, so that'll be really interesting to know that uh, how does Go scale into this? Uh, mm -hmm. edge devices, so to speak, right? Yeah, that's, I think there's an analogy to Linux that I'll make. The, the Linux kernel is a, is a very efficient, reliable, well-written piece of software that has been deployed in, into many, many servers. You know, that's probably where it's been the most successful. At mm -hmm. least initially, it was a very successful server operating system. And the reasons for that is it's, it's, um, reliable, it's secure. And if you're deploying in, into a data center with servers, you want it to be very efficient too, because then it requires less hardware, less electricity. Mm -hmm. For the same reason that Linux scales well into the server and cloud space also makes it an excellent fit in the embedded space because it's efficient, relatively small, doesn't take a lot of resources. When Google created the Go language, you know, they had many of the same constraints in mind. You know, when they deploy something into, on, into their infrastructure, they, don't, they want it to use the least amount of resources as possible, and they want it to be efficient. So you know, they created it for the, for the cloud or for, for the servers, but the constraints they designed it under also make it very applicable to embedded Linux. And, and like I said, a typical Go application is around 10 megabytes in size, the binary has mm -hmm. everything embedded in, in the statically linked embedded in it. So it's, you know, 10 megabytes, that is a chunk of memory, but in a modern embedded Linux system, you know, that's pretty insignificant when you compare it to, to other application stacks like Python or Node.js. Right. Um, even C, you know, the libraries can quickly add up to, to tens of megabytes. So. Yep. Yep. So now, um, the projects are out there. So um, what are some areas of, uh, you know, you're looking for contributions uh, to these projects? And, um, you know, what would you advise if someone was interested uh, in contributing to these projects? Well, I think the, the best way to contribute to something is if, if you use it and find it useful, you know, it, you're naturally set up to be a contributor. Mm-hmm. Like I said, we've we've used both these projects, mm -hmm. and, and I know you as a maintainer find find the Yo distribution useful for for your work in maintaining all the yep. all the various open embedded layers and bits that you maintain. So we we think it's uh, generally pretty useful. The, the best way to contribute something is to be a user. I, I remember a comment by Matt Mullenweg, who who's one of the founding developers of WordPress, is his advice for open source projects is be your most passionate user. So, you know, most things get done when you scratch your own itch or whatever, however they say that. So it's, it's, uh, 
Mm. Very well said. And then, you know, I we just use a standard GitHub flow, so open issues or pull requests. Mm-hmm. So um, I know that, um, you know, there are several ways people work and, um, and you know, you are very heavily development focused as well. And um, I'm sure that listeners would like to know a few tips from you, uh, from your daily work life to, you know, if you can share a few tips and tricks that you deploy often doing, uh, you know, development, debugging, or any other sort of uh, software activities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I run Linux as my personal computer OS for years, and I, I think it's great. I, I've also run Mac OS at times. and, and um, mm-hmm. But one thing I, I think, if you're going to be an embedded Linux developer, it really helps if you run Linux on your computer as well, because it teaches you a lot. And mm-hmm. um, I just think it really... You know, Linux is Linux, whether it's on a server or desktop or embedded. So the more you use it, the, the better you'll be with, with all the different aspects of it. Mm-hmm. And one thing I've, I've kind of learned from the Go community and then uh, subsequently in JavaScript and Elm communities is the value of code formatting tools. And mm-hmm. this, this kind of surprised me, but in the Go community, there's there's a Go format tool, which formats your code and, and it's been integrated in, into all the editors. Looking back, it's just surprising how much value that adds that you can just write your code and don't have to worry too much about formatting. When you save it, boom, it just is magically formatted very nicely. Right. So once I got used to that in the Go, with Go, I, I just find solutions for all, of my, all the languages I program. Even Bash, there's tools now to format Bash scripts. And... Um, they're, they're very powerful. They make suggestions. They help you clean things up. They find errors. And it's just a really, really a nice, it's a little thing, but it, it has a big impact, I feel, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. developer happiness. Um, so that's, yeah. I, I use NeoVim and, and VS Code some. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, this is... Um, uh, really good. And uh, actually, you know, that reminds me that recently I was, um, my son is learning Go and, you know, he was um, using Visual Studio Code. And um, so he used a function, uh, in fact, from Math Library and it added math to import automatically. <laughs> yeah, Go imports, and, right. Yeah. And uh, and then he stopped using the the format package and it deleted it automatically. And mm-hmm. I found that very useful because... In C, uh, you know, 30% of the time is spent in parsing, right? Yeah. And one of the reasons is that uh, it's the includes and includes and includes that it is parsing in your C program. So uh, so eventually, like, if you have huge programs, then there's a significant amount of time that is now being spent on these includes and whatnot, right? So what I found is, and, you know, it just occurred to me because I'm not a a deep Go programmer myself, but I looked at it and I said, it's the right thing because they will keep it, you know, neat and nice and only include the things that are needed. And it's really, really useful. Yeah, that, that's just, just huge. Mm-hmm. I mean, after you get used to programming in Go with, with this type of tooling, it's really hard to go back to C++ and, mm-hmm. and separate header files and, and managing all that. Like you said, it's... Yeah. Computers should really be doing these things for us at this point. Right. So um, 
so I know that you know you have a, a a long body of experience and anything you know you learned over the period where you like to tell people, hey, don't do this. Yeah. Well, I guess you know just kind of on a on the embedded Linux side, you know, I, I've seen people trying to deploy Node.js applications to embedded Linux several times, and mm-hmm. that's really proven to be a pretty difficult task for a number of reasons, but oftentimes. Uh, Node.js packages, you know, they link to C libraries and and uh, they have all these kind of handcrafted ways to to build C C stuff into Node.js packages. Mm-hmm. And then whenever you try to cross compile that stuff, it, it's a mess. So, mm-hmm. and and plus the dependencies tend to really explode in in the Node.js applications um, mm-hmm. because every every package can include its own chain of dependencies. So there's no, no sharing of dependencies and, you know, on, on a server or a, on a workstation, that's not a huge deal, but um, in an embedded system, you know, it, you can quickly rack up tens of megabytes of dependencies. So I, I would strongly encourage looking at go, you know, if you're going to be deploying a, that type of application to embedded Linux, and then the other other thing that came to mind when you when you asked that is, you know, don't wait too long to ship your first version of, of anything, whether it be a project or a product. Or I think many of us can get carried away with future proofing or perfecting. And right. you know, upfront planning and design is important, but it's also important to get something out there and get feedback because often one of the biggest challenges in a, in a product is figuring out what's actually needed and how users are actually going to use it and what they really need. So yeah. one, of, one of my favorite articles is titled Iterate Hardware Like Software. And maybe we can provide a link to that in the show notes, but it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a neat article and it kind of captures some of these thoughts. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I think I agree with both your points, I think. And um, so, uh, are there uh, some of your you know favorite books that you like to share with us, or any you know podcasts you listen to, or blogs you read regularly? Yeah, I I really like podcasts. They they provide insight into people and projects that you you don't get any other way. I found, and I'm not sure why that is, but it seems like the discussion format sometimes people, this informal type format reaches a little deeper into the whys and hows than, than something more formal like a blog or, a, mm-hmm. or other types of media. Mm-hmm. So, so I like the change log family of podcasts, but you know, there's, there's so many good ones. And um, personally, I just kind of listen and read a smattering of different things. So I don't know that I, I'm reading a book right now called Drive by Daniel Pink. And I, I think it's excellent definitely worthy mm-hmm. of consideration. Mm-hmm. So. Yes. So um, do you like, uh, what category of books do you generally prefer to read? Yeah, I, I suppose I enjoy reading about technology and then also kind of like this, this drive book. It talks about company culture or, or, or just what, what motivates people, why, mm-hmm. why certain organizations succeed, why others don't. Yeah. So that, that aspect really interests me. One thing I really like about open source is just the collaborative nature of, of yes. the projects. And I think there's a lot we can all learn from that. It's very successful. Yeah. 
And uh, yeah, I, I just enjoy learning about those type, that aspect of, of open source. Right, right. Yeah, I think uh, the um, intrinsic motivation, you know, so most of that is common uh, that you will find in a lot of open source projects. And uh, it's fascinating to me as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, any uh, particular like, you know, upcoming technology that you're looking keenly on or that interests you? Um, would you like to share a few thoughts about those? Yeah, I don't, I don't know that I, I don't consider myself much of a visionary or prophet, if you will. But um, one, one thing I do believe is the future is, is simplicity. You know, simple things are really going to be the path forward in, in a lot of areas. And I think mm-hmm. programming languages like Go and, and Elm have kind of demonstrated that. And then there's other, one thing that kind of comes to mind with, with embedded Linux, it seems like the tooling is still way too complex. Mm-hmm. And some of the abstractions are, are um, you know, I, I think with, with Yocto or, or Open Embedded, you know, one of the things that's a little frustrating for a lot of users is the stack traces when something goes wrong. You know, yeah. It's a bunch of undecipherable Python stuff that just is very difficult to wade through. So I guess that's kind of where I, you know, as I get older, that's, that's kind of where my preferences and where I, I believe is any way we can make things simpler um, mm-hmm. will provide big benefits. The other thing that's, that's kind of interesting from a product development perspective is just the, the newer, new ways to prototype hardware, mm-hmm. you know, where you don't talk to anybody, you just send your design files and they produce a printed circuit board, a sound bullet, at fairly low costs, you know, Seed Studio and Macrofab are both companies doing this. I'm sure there's others, but this is really gonna gonna change the way we develop products, and that we can iterate much faster at very low cost. Mm-hmm. So that that's very interesting to me as well. Yeah. So do you do you think that you know the hardware development would be as iterative as fast as uh, software? I, I I assume right. Yeah, it'll never be quite as fast, but it's changing. You know, for $50, you can get a new round of prototypes built. And right. um, that's, it really changes things from, right. from say, 10 years back where, you, you know, it would be thousands and thousands of dollars just to run a, do, a, do a, even a low-volume run of prototypes. So, Yeah, I think, uh, you know, there used to be like uh, – alpha release party and beta and then then taping parties right and these taping parties were uh, spread across i think six months or something so yeah i think the total time was really really huge for a new chip to come out for example sure yeah so um i think it was uh, really interesting to talk to you cliff about various technologies and your uh, history with open source and, you know, seeding the projects that uh, you've uh, done for open source. And of course, a few pearls of advice that you offered. Um, Thank you very much. Any final thoughts you have for our listeners today? No, I I appreciate the opportunity and and look forward to engaging with various people as they find interesting projects. I'm sure there'll be a lot of interesting things going on in the future. So, yeah. All right. With that note, thank you, Cliff, very much. And uh, we'll be back with another episode of Tempter uh, soon. Thank you very much for listening to us. Thank you. Okay. Yep. Take care.